Well, by this time, Jason and Gretchen have had their first church service in Scotland. Uh, you probably saw the little video of them going from here to there and and uh, just continue to pray for them for fruit in their ministry and all the things that happen when a family moves to a totally different culture over there. This morning we want to start, I'm going to start a study in the book of Matthew. It's been years since we've gone through this gospel. Our next epistle was going to be Galatians, and I just felt we needed to go back and go through another gospel. And the uh, book of Matthew is just an amazing book, so we're going to have fun. The message is entitled this morning, The Family of Jesus. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Now, Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled as a teacher, that each one of us might be spirit-filled listeners, that the word might find a home in our heart, that we might be more like you, that we might be sharpened and filled with knowledge for ministry. Lord, I pray for those again who may not know you, that as they hear the gospel this morning, you might use that to draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. The family of Jesus. We're just going to look at the first 17 verses today. We're not going to read through all of them. We're just going to touch on them. Uh, J. Vernon McGee talked about he had a uh, chaplain friend that used to hand out New Testaments to guys in the, in the military that he had in his care. And uh, many of them didn't know any better, so they'd start in Matthew and they'd barely make it through the uh, genealogy here and think, well, this isn't for me, I don't get it. But they're for a purpose. You know, when you have a family, you're interested in where you came from. That's just kind of natural. We want to know where we came from. Uh, several years ago, I did one of those little tests that you can send off, and they can tell you what you're made up of. Now, I knew I was mostly a Scandinavian because my mom's side, my grandma and grandpa, both came from Norway and Sweden from the same part, so there's no genetic difference. They look at that whole peninsula as, as one people. But I found out I was 25% uh, German and 10% Scottish and 10% Spanish. I didn't know that. So it's interesting. It doesn't really make any difference. Uh, we still have to make our own decisions, but it's interesting. When we look at this genealogy, I want you to understand something. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, this is your family too. The Bible says, Paul wrote in Romans, that we are grafted in to the blessings of Abraham. And Abraham was promised in Genesis chapter 15 that in, that in him, in his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You are not second-class citizens. You've been adopted by Jesus Christ into his family. So this is the story also of your family. 20 or 30 years after Jesus had gone back to heaven, up till that point, the disciples had memorized the teaching of Jesus, and they just shared them. But the Holy Spirit moved Matthew, probably one of the first Gospels, to sit down and write this Gospel. Now, when he writes it, he doesn't just do it in chronological order because there's a purpose. He is presenting Jesus primarily to the Jewish people as their promised king, their Messiah. So he starts with this very important genealogy. And after the first three chapters of announcing the king, they move into the king making or, or making that relationship, the Old Testament of the king, then they announce the king. Then the next few chapters, four through, uh, excuse me, uh, eight through ten, is the king bringing the kingdom. So you have all those 
miracles kind of pressed together, not in chronological order, because he's making a point. And then you come to the end of Matthew, and you see the kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of this world and the king of glory. And Jesus sits down, and he gives that Olivet Discourse to kind of show where things are coming to. Now, first of all, Matthew is a biographer. Now, this isn't a biography as such, but he is presenting a new king, a new Moses, and a new kind of man because he is called Emmanuel, God with us. And he divides, Matthew divides up this book into five parts. I've just kind of gone over briefly just to parallel the five books of Moses. And so he gives the new teaching of Moses in the what we call the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5 through 7. Secondly, he introduces this new book. So he introduces a new king, a new Moses, and Emmanuel, and then he is a bridge builder. Because if you went right from the Old Testament to Acts, you'd be like, oh, this must be something new. But here, Matthew comes along and he brings us back to the Old Testament and shows us this is a fulfillment. He even has that lineage go through what we call the Dark Ages because we don't know much about the intertestamental period. And he brings us right into New Testament times. Thirdly, Matthew is a believer and he introduces to us a new people. In chapter 16, he introduces us to the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. So who was Matthew before he was a believer? Well, he was a tax collector. Now, that may not mean much to you, but Rome had a different system. They didn't have their own IRS, you know, the, R, the RTS, the Roman tax system. What they would do is go to a country. It was kind of genius, but they actually turned people against one another, but it was the way they got their money, and it worked really well. So if you wanted to be involved with, the, with the, the government of Rome, you were called a publican. But those people were hated by their own people. You ended up leaving probably your own family, your extended family at least, because you were separated from your culture. You were not allowed to go to the synagogue because you were a cheater. It was kind of like the mafia. So what you would do is you would buy a franchise for a city or for a road or for a bridge, and then... You paid Rome for that franchise. That's what they got. And then you made up all the rest of the money you could get out of the people coming by. And people didn't mess with you because the godfather was behind them. So you had to pay whatever they said. So they ripped people off. They were not fair. And so we have the story of Zacchaeus. Remember, he comes to Christ. Jesus went to his house. And his first statement of of faith is kind of, Hey, if I've cheated anybody, like big if, right? If I've cheated anybody, I will pay everybody back fourfold. He changed gods, so he changed value systems. Because if you're going to become a publican, you had to make a, a, a decision about value. You had to decide money is more important to me than my people. Money is more important to me than my family. And Matthew made that decision. Now, Jesus had moved his from his hometown Nazareth, and eventually even moved his mom and his brothers down to Capernaum. Capernaum sits right on the Sea of Galilee. If you've been on the trip to Israel, you've been there. It's a beautiful spot. And it's a spot where people, a lot of people came through, so it was a key place for ministry. So Jesus moves down there, 
And there's Matthew. He's a tax collector. I'm sure that Matthew heard Jesus teach, but if you're a tax collector, you're going to sit on the outside. You're not welcome to the synagogue. And so when you have a great crowd that's gathered, I don't know about you, but you don't, I don't like going places people don't want you to be there. Everywhere you went, people went, oh, and they came and look and give you these glares. Because you're, you're a ripoff guy. You're cheated people. And you're the government. And the government's not fair. But I'm sure he heard it, and, G- and he was thinking about these things. He heard about the miracles. I think he would see the, Jesus and his disciples passing out of town as they went on their journeys, and they ministered. And one day, Jesus stopped. He said, you, follow me. What an amazing thing. And the Bible says Matthew got up, and he left everything. He left everything. It was not a big decision. I think that's why later Matthew pulls all those parables together to explain why some people have received Christ gladly. Others are still thinking about it. Others, the leadership of Israel, for the most part, have rejected Christ. But Matthew, he's the one that found the pearl of great price. He's the one that found the treasure hidden in the field because it was not a hard decision. The Bible said he got up, left everything, and followed. Not only did God change his heart personally, but he opened his house. He invited all of his other tax collector friends in because you got to have somebody for friends. And they had a big celebration, a big party, and Jesus came and ministered. And then they began to call Jesus the friend of sinners. And the religious leaders used it as a put down. But we today, we, we glory in that because if Jesus was not the friend of sinners, he wouldn't be our friend either. I think if you looked at the book of John, the gospel of John was written to the world. And John uses this little phrase about himself. Instead of naming himself, he just said, the one that Jesus loved. So if I think you pick something out from the gospel of John, John would say, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Luke was written to the Greeks with the idea of the wisdom of man, and Jesus called the son of man. And the key verse of that, of that gospel is Luke 19.10, that Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. And I think Luke would say, I'm the one Jesus found. And in Mark, the story of the powerful servant, Jesus is the powerful servant, I think Mark would say, I'm the one that Jesus saved. But I think if Matthew would put it all together, he would say, I'm the one that Jesus chose. Nobody else would have chosen. I don't think that it's, I think they were probably the only people more excited or surprised about Matthew being chosen himself was the other disciples because he had been taxing them too. What? You're choosing them? It just shows we, we can't look at people on the outside and see what their need is. But Jesus knows. Now the theme of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. That's the theme. The one who is going to establish this kingdom is the Lord Jesus. The kingdom is all important. The Gospel of Matthew contains three major discourses concerning the kingdom. First, the Sermon on the Mount, where the king tells his new law. And he's not saying, do these things in order to be part of the kingdom. He's just saying, if you're part of the kingdom, these will be the things that are evident in your life. Secondly, the mystery of the parables. 
that the kingdom is a great treasure and it's hidden. But those that he's called seek for it and are willing to give up everything to find it. Thirdly, the Olivet Discourse. This looks forward to the establishment of the kingdom here upon this earth. The genealogy which opens the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament is in many respects the most important document in the Scriptures. The entire Bible rests upon this accuracy. Now look at the three divisions. Now first of all, you have the vision from Abraham down to David. Because David is the first king. Well, he's not the first king of Israel, but he's the first king in the line of Jesus. So it's Saul, then God sets Saul aside, and he chooses this shepherd boy, David, to be the king. And then you have the period of the monarchy. And then after that, you have kind of the dark ages of Israel from the deportation until the time of Christ. Now, the New Testament rests upon this the accuracy of the genealogy because it established the fact that Jesus Christ is in the line of Abraham, so racially, he's qualified to be the king. And secondly, he's a son of David by royal descent. And so he is in line to be the king. Now, this genealogy during Jesus' day was a public record. Now, if you go to Israel today, and I've done this on the trip, asked individual Jewish people that we've met, some of our guides. Now, what tribe are you from? They're all from the tribe of Judah. Are they? I don't know. Now, besides Judah and Benjamin, the rest of the tribes went into dispersion. And since 70 AD, nobody really knows what tribe they're from because all those records were destroyed. But we know in the time of tribulation, God is going to supernaturally let them know. They're going to find out whether they'll discover records or somehow they're going to find out because the Bible says during that day, 12,000 young men from all of the 12 tribes, so 144,000 are going to come to Christ. They're going to go throughout, throughout, throughout the whole world and witness. But today, Jesus is the only one that has a record that's a right to the throne. Now, in Jesus' day, there were probably other people that could say, well, I'm in the line of David too. But uniquely, he's the only one that's able to sit there. You see, what we have here in Matthew is Joseph's genealogy. Now, in Joseph's genealogy, it goes from Solomon to Rehoboam. But you'll see it's different when you go to the genealogy found in Luke, and that's Mary's genealogy. Why is that? Because in the genealogy of Joseph is the legal right to the throne, but God said one of those kings was so wicked, your son will never sit on the throne, and yet he promised that David's son would sit on the throne. So here with Joseph who adopted Jesus, he's not his biological father, he's the son of Mary and the son of God, right? But he has the legal right to the throne. Now, I don't think that the parents of Mary and Joseph sat down and looked at genealogy, oh, this is where we work, let me put them together. No, I think this is God's sovereignty. He just did that. And in Luke, what you have, if you go back and look, there was a brother of Solomon who was not a king, his name was Nathaniel, and he's the same as the prophet Nathan, right? but different person. He's not a prophet. He's, he's Solomon's brother, and that's where the line comes down through Mary. So you have a blood right to the throne through Mary, and you have the legal right to the throne through Joseph. Very important. Because in that day, anybody could go and look at these records in the temple, and they could say, well, yeah. And all the things that they pursued Jesus and, and, and were trying to destroy him on, nobody ever brought up his genealogy, because that was public record. Remember, Jesus said, the shepherd of the sheep enters by the door in John 10, right? 
a robber and a thief comes up some other way. The sheepfold is Israel. And Jesus was saying he's the great shepherd of the sheep. He didn't climb up another way. According to his genealogy, he is in the line of Abraham and David, and he's the rightful ruler of Israel. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or it says here the record of the genealogy. Now in the King James, it uses the same phrase, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. The only other place that's found, that word is found as you go clear back to Genesis 5.1, and it says the book of the generations of Adam. Now the Bible says in Romans 5 that in Adam all die, and that's a book of death. They were born, they had children, they died. Born, they had children, they died. And then we have this book of the generations of Jesus Christ. Now, what if you could pick your own ancestors? Wouldn't that be something? You might be in a better place today. You know, you could pick your own ancestors, your own mom and dad and grandpa. And Jesus did that. Why? Because he's the sovereign God of the universe. He called the worlds into existence. He protected every part of that line because Satan was always trying to destroy people in that line. Dr. Bookman is always saying the proof of the word of God is found in the fact that there is a nation of Israel that exists today. Then he says this, have you ever met a Hittite? No, because there are all kinds of people groups that have gone extinct, but God has preserved. And who is the God that's preserving the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ? It says in chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. That's something. Jesus picked his own relatives. Now, the amazing part about that, just like your family, there's some patriarchs that you look to and there's some black sheep that you wonder about, right? But in Jesus' lineage, his heritage, Jesus always operated in grace. The first period from Abraham to David was that of the patriarchs of Moses, Joshua, and the judges. It was a period of wandering, of enslavement, of foreign land, of deliverance, and of covenant making, and of law giving, of conquest and victory, and of defeats. Even Abraham, the father of faith, we know about some things. He, not knowing where he go, he went out and he believed God. And he believed God about the birth of Isaac, but he also didn't believe God preserved him. And two times, he lied about his wife to protect himself. God, in his, 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 all of his wisdom, lays out all these men of faith, even these heroes of the faith, and shows us not only... Their obedience, he shows us their disobedience. That we see salvation is always by grace and not by works. The second period from David to the deportation to Babylon, the story of the monarchy, it was a period of almost uninterrupted decline, degeneration, apostasy, and tragedy. There were defeats, there were conquests, there were exiles, the destruction of Jerusalem and his temple. But only in David, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah do we see even much evidence of godliness. We see none. In the northern kingdom. This is just Judah in the southern kingdom. The third period from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ was that of captivity, exile, frustration, of marking time. Now we don't know much about any of these people, but we know this God was preserving his people. 
so that he chose these people to come to this line. Careful look at the descendants both of Abraham and of David reveals people who were often characterized by unfaithfulness, immorality, idolatry, and apostasy, but God's dealing with them was always characterized by grace. You have Manasseh. And Manasseh was one of the wickedest, most violent kings that lived. But then at the end of the life, he repented. And God forgave him. And he's going to be in heaven. Also in this are included four women. Four women who were outcasts. Some people don't come to Christ because they think, well, I'm not good enough. Or I don't think God would accept me. See, what you do is you devalue the blood of Christ Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have not been redeemed by corruptible things like silver and gold, by that which is precious, the very blood of Jesus Christ. So there's no sinner beyond redemption. There are no outcasts that cannot come. But Jesus said, come unto me all you that are weak and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. But just interesting, just briefly, these four outcasts, normally women are not included, but they're named. Tamar, the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah was one of the patriarchs, and one of his sons was so wicked that God killed him. And so, according to the law, her brother, or, or, or excuse me, Judah's son that died, his brother was supposed to rise up and marry that widow so she would have children. She didn't have any children. And so, he, Judah gave him the next son to be husband of Tamar, he was wicked too. God killed him. So there was one more son. And I don't know if Judah was thinking, I'm not sure I want to give my third son to this woman, blaming her, not blaming his own children, right? So he didn't. He lied to Tamar. And so having a son, having a family was a big deal. So she took matters into her own hands. It was wicked. But it just shows you God's grace. We can intend something for evil, high-handed sin. But God can use it for his glory. And he displays his grace on the backdrop of our sin. And so Tamar dressed up like a prostitute. Judah's wife had passed away. So he was out doing cowboy stuff, whatever he was doing, chasing the sheep or cattle. And so he was kind of lonely. So he sees this prostitute there at this city he was visiting. And she knew he was coming. And she probably knew what kind of guy her father-in-law was. So I don't know what she did, but he recognized your dress. He says, hey, let me, let me come into you. He said, well, that's fine, but you've got to give me a promise that you're going to pay me because he didn't have his money bags with him, I guess. So he gave her his staff and a bracelet, and he did his deed, goes on his way, and later he hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. So what's, what's this righteous man do? Bring her out here. Let's burn her. Wise girl, she kept the signets, and so she brought it well. I'm pregnant by the man who belongs to these. And he said, uh, she's more righteous than I am. And she had twins, and one of those twins is right here, Perez, in the line of, of, of Jesus Christ. The second outcast was a woman, a Gentile. She too was guilty of prostitution, but unlike Tamar, that was her job. When the children of Israel came to Jericho to pass into the land, remember they spied out the land, they, they snuck, the two spies snuck into uh, uh, Jericho, and she hid them because the people in Jericho were scared to death of these people. So they snuck in. They found out how scared they were, and she lied 
to the people that asked as she hid the spies. She hid them up on the roof. Then later they said, listen, when we come to destroy, you stay in your apartment and you tie this red cord that you let us out with so we know, everybody knows, come to this place, you're protected. God takes this prostitute, she becomes a believer, and she marries this man who becomes, and she becomes the great-grandmother of David the king. The third one was Ruth, the wife of Boaz. Her Ruth's father-in-law, first father-in-law and mother-in-law had, because of maybe the, the famine, had moved over to Moab, and they'd done what was wrong, and those sons married Moabite women. Some Bible expositors say that's why God killed them. Nevertheless, the one daughter-in-law, when Naomi decided to go back to her Israel because her, daughter, her sons had died, her husband was dead, the one daughter-in-law said she'd go with, then she said, no, you stay here. So she went back to her Moabite people, but Ruth said, no, no, I belong to you. Your people are my people, your God is my God. She went back home to Naomi and they began to try to make it as widows. But their close kinsman, Boaz, saw her, fell in love with her, and married her, and she becomes the grandmother of David the king. Now listen, the Bible says that you're not to enter in to worship in the men, court of the men until like the fourth or fifth generation when you marry somebody outside Israel. But that shows you God's grace because David the king is in charge of all this. And he's only two generations away from what was forbidden before. The fourth outcast is Bathsheba. She's not identified here, but that is the woman who was married to Uriah. David had many wives himself, but he wanted her also, so he killed one of his very good friends, one of the mighty men, slept with this woman. The first, the first child that was born in discipline, God takes that child home to be in heaven. The second one, born is Solomon the king and the ancestor of the Messiah. So we come back to this statement, the book of the generation. It's unique here in Matthew and Genesis chapter 5. So how do you get into the book of Adam? You get into the book of Adam by being born. Isn't that something? You're just born. And the Bible does say about that in Romans 5, in Adam all die. But there's the book here of the generations of Jesus Christ. The other book, how do you get into that family? How do you get into that genealogy? You get in by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. That puts you into the Lamb's book of life. We get there by trusting Christ. We're all in the first book, but only those that have trusted Christ as Savior are in the Lamb's book of life. The genealogy of Jesus Christ is more than a list of ancient names. It's even more than a list of Jesus' human forebears. It's a beautiful testimony to God's grace and to the ministry of his son, Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners who did not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If he's called sinners by grace to be his forefathers, should we be surprised when he calls them by grace to be his descendants? The king presented here is truly the king of grace. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the family that you have provided for in your own blood on the cross. And Lord, I pray if there are any here that do not know you as their own personal Savior, that today they would see their awful condition of being separated from you. 
just written in Adam's book of death. Lord, draw them to yourself that they might find safety in the Lamb to be a part of your family, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.